something new this is the first episode of spark and uh we're gonna cover something that's been pretty dear to me for quite a few years and i don't know if the term dear is the right term considering what we're going to be covering but uh, it's the wendigo i uh i happen to have a wendigo tattoo on me i carried around a soda bottle that had a the same picture that's on my leg of the wendigo for about five years before i actually found a tattoo artist that would put it on me and understood what the meaning of it was i didn't want to jump into anything and not know what uh he was getting himself into. He said, "Tonight we're gonna we're gonna try and zero in on the Wendigo." I think the best thing to do is to start off with uh, the definition. As uh, what I'm gonna try and do in these ventures is try and educate people as to what the topic is. We'll follow along a line of first an explanation, then a little bit of the history, and then some of the folklore that goes into it. So uh, we'll jump right in and uh, we'll start off with uh, the definition. Canadian Encyclopedia defines a Wendigo as a spirit that takes possession of vulnerable persons and causes them to engage in various antisocial behaviors, most notably cannibalism. Canadian writer Margaret Atwood described the Wendigo as a cannibal with a heart of ice, eyes that roll in blood, and lips blackened and eaten away, probably as good a summary of this creature's attributes as any. Ojibwe author Basil Johnston theorizes that a Wendigo is a human whose selfishness has overpowered their self-control to the point that satisfaction is no longer possible. This explains why they remain hungry no matter how much they eat. Now, uh, for this part, it's been asked numerous times by different people, um, where exactly does this legend come from? And um, where it comes from is actually was actually surprising to me. I did know that it was from um, parts of Canada and parts of North America, or not North America, but the United States. According to this definition or this summary, it is known in much of Canada, the Maritime Maritime provinces and uh, Northwestern territories and parts of Northern United States. Now the tribes that it covers are pretty much all of the Algonquin tribes, which include the Mi'kmaq, the Montagnus, the Naskapi, Algonquin, Abenaki, Ojibwe, Cree, and the Blackfoot. Now these tribes were mostly found in parts of uh, upper North America, which would cover Canada as well as Maine, Minnesota, all the upper states. So by them being part of this, it's very uh, interesting that every single tribe has a similar folklore. Usually when tribes are broken apart like these, their folklore tends to break apart. But this particular legend seems to hold true in every single one of these nations. And that is what intrigues me the most about the Wendigo. Um, A lot of the folklore about werewolves and vampires and other creatures of the night, including skinwalkers, um, they tend to break up a lot. When you go throughout the United States, um, stories of vampirism and werewolves or lycanthropy tend to, they splinter. Whereas the Wendigo has the same exact attributes for every single nation. So while I was rooting around looking for information on the Wendigo, there was stuff that I knew about, but there was also stuff that surprisingly I found out a lot of information on. This piece comes from a place called the Prairie Ghost. 
it had a lot of information in it that I did not know, but it also had a lot of stuff that was like a breath of fresh air as far as information that I did know. And it just reaffirmed the information that I was um, taught as a child. This is the Windigo, the North Woods of Minnesota. While this creature is considered by many to be the creation of horror writer Algernon Blackwood in his classic terror tale, The Wendigo. This wood spirit was and is very real to many of the northern woods and prairies of the state. Many legends and stories have circulated over the years about the mysterious creature who was encountered by hunters and campers in the shadowy forests of the upper regions of Minnesota. In one variation of the story, the creature could only be seen if it faced the witness head on because of it was so thin that it could not be seen from the side. The spirit was said to have a voracious appetite for human flesh, and the many forest dwellers who disappeared over the years were said to be victims of the monster. The American Indians had their own tales of the Wendigo, dating back so many years that most of their interviewed members could not remember when the story had not been told. The Inuit Indians of the region called the creature by various names, including Wendigo, Wittigo, Wittigo, and Wittigo. But each of them was roughly translated to mean the evil spirit that devours mankind. Around 1860, a German explorer translated Wendigo to mean cannibal among the tribes along the Great Lakes. Native American versions of the creature spoke of a gigantic spirit over 15 feet tall that had once been human, but had been transformed into a creature by the use of magic. Though all descriptions of the creature vary slightly, the Wendigo is generally said to have glowing eyes, long yellowed fangs, and overly long tongues. Most have a sallow, yellowish skin, but others are said to be matted with hair. They are tall and lanky and are driven by a horrible hunger. But how would a person grow to become one of these strange creatures? According to the lore, the Wendigo is created whenever a human resorts to cannibalism to survive. In years past, such practices was possible, although still rare, as many of the tribes and settlers in the region were cut off by the bitter snows and ice of the northern woods. Unfortunately, eating another person to survive was something resorted to, and thus the legend of the Wendigo was created. But how real were, or are, these creatures? Could the legend of the Wendigo have been created merely as a warning against cannibalism? Or could sightings of Bigfoot-type creatures have created the stories? While this is unknown, it is believed that white settlers to the region took the stories seriously. At times, they even took the sightings and reports quite seriously and made it enough of the local culture that stories like those of Algernon Blackwood were penned. Real-life stories were told as well as according to the settlers' versions of the legend. The Wendigo would often be seen, banshee-like, to signal a death in the community. A Wendigo allegedly made a number of appearances near a town in Rosius in northern Minnesota from the late 1800s through the 1920s. Each time that it was reported, an unexpected death followed, and finally, it was seen no more. Even into the last century, Native Americans actively believed in and searched for the Wendigo. One of the most famous Wendigo hunters was a Cree Indian named Jack Fiddler. He claimed to kill at least 14 of the creatures in his lifetime, although the last murder resulted in his imprisonment at the age of 87. In 1907, Fiddler and his son Joseph were tried for the murder of a Cree Indian woman. They both pleaded guilty to the crime, but defended themselves by stating that the woman was possessed by the spirit of a Wendigo and was on the verge of transforming into one entirely. According to the defense, she had been killed before she murdered other members of the tribe. There are still many stories told of Wendigo that have been seen in, the, in northern Ontario, near the cave of the Wendigo and around the town of Kenora, where the creature has been spotted by traders, trackers, and trappers for decades. There are many who still believe that the Wendigo roams the woods and the prairies of northern Minnesota and Canada, 
whether it seeks human flesh or acts as a portent of coming doom is anyone's guess. But before you start to doubt that it exists, remember that the stories and legends of this fearsome creature have been around since before the white man walked on these shores. So now after reading this, uh, one might ask themselves, is there any correlation between this gentleman named Jack Fiddler and his murders and what actually did happen? So just for that purpose, we're going to read a little bit about Mr. Fiddler. By all accounts, uh, this gentleman did actually believe in what he was doing. And uh, whether or not he was actually killing Wendigos seems to be beside the point. You find that a lot of times in, I don't want to say Native American, but um, Aboriginal people, when they have a belief in something, the belief is so deeply embedded in their belief systems that no matter what is told to them, no matter what kind of explanations are given, it tends to be disregarded because of the rich heritage that is brought along with um, storytelling. Storytelling is a huge way of um, having people pass oral tradition, and it still, to this day, still is used, even in our own cultures. I'm going to read this little blurb about uh, Mr. Fiddler. Up until the last century, some Native Americans actively believed in and searched for Wendigos. One of the most famous Wendigo hunters was Jack Fiddler. Fiddler was a Cree Indian who claimed to have killed at least 14 of the creatures in his lifetime. In October 1907, Fiddler and his son, Joseph, were tried for the murder of a Cree woman. Both men pleaded guilty, but claimed that the murder was necessary because she was possessed by a Wendigo spirit. Fiddler claimed that the woman was on the verge of transforming entirely into a Wendigo and that she would had to be killed before she murdered other members of the Cree tribe. Fiddler was ultimately imprisoned at the age of 87. Despite Fiddler's alleged successes, Wendigos are notoriously hard to kill. They have few weaknesses as far as weapons are concerned, only succumbing to iron, steel, and silver. The most gruesome method of killing is to shatter the creature's heart with a silver stake and then dismember the body with a silver axe. Now, Mr. Fiddler was born in 1939 and was the chief and shaman of the uh, Sucker Dudum among the Ananashibi in what is now northern, northwestern Ontario. Like his father before him, Jack Fiddler became a famous shaman for his alleged ability to conjure animals and protect his people from spells. He also claimed that he could defeat Wendigos, cannibalistic spirits that possessed people during bouts of famine and disease. In his life, Jack Fiddler claimed to have defeated 14 Wendigos. Fiddler's own brother, Peter Flat, was killed after turning Wendigo when the food ran out on the trading expedition. Jack Fiddler was arrested in 1906 and the alleged murder of a Wendigo committed suicide before trial on September 30th, 1907.
I'm going to read a little bit about uh, Wendigo psychosis. And our man Jack Fiddler pops up here again. Wendigo psychosis. The term Wendigo psychosis also spelled many other ways, including Wendigo psychosis and Wittigo psychosis, refers to a condition in which sufferers develop an insatiable desire to eat human flesh, even when other food sources were readily available, often as a result of prior famine cannibalism. Wendigo psychosis has traditionally been identified by Western psychologists as a culture-bound syndrome, though there is debate over the existence of phenomenon as a genuine disorder. The theory was popular primarily among psychologists in the early 1900s, and many have resulted from a misinterpretation of northern Algonquin myth and culture. In accounts of Wendigo psychosis, members of the Aboriginal communities in which it exists believe that cases literally involved individuals turning into Wendigos. Such individuals generally recognized these symptoms as meaning that they were turning into Wendigos and often requested to be executed before they could harm others. The most common response when someone began suffering from Wendigo psychosis was curing attempts by traditional native healers or Western doctors. In the usual cases where the attempts failed, the Wendigo began either to threaten those around them or to act violently and antisocially. They were then generally executed. Cases of Wendigo psychosis, though evidently real, were relatively rare, and it was even rarer for them to actually culminate in the execution of the sufferer. One of the most famous cases of Wendigo psychosis included a Plains Cree trapper from Alberta named Swift Runner. During the winter of 1878, Swift Runner and his family were starving, and his eldest son died. 25 miles away from the emergency food supply at Hudson's Bay Company Post, Swift Runner butchered and ate his wife and five remaining children. Given that he resorted to cannibalism so near to food supplies and that he killed and consumed the remains of all those present, it was revealed that Swift Runner was not a case of pure cannibalism as a result or a last resort avoid starvation, but rather a man suffering from Wendigo psychosis. He eventually confessed and was ex executed by authorities at Fort Saskatchewan. Another well-known case involved Wendigo psychosis was that of Jack Fiddler, an O.G. Cree chief and shaman known for his powers at defeating Wendigos. In some cases, this essentially entailed euthanizing people suffering from Wendigo psychosis. As a result, in 1907, Fiddler and his brother Joseph were arrested by the Canadian authorities for murder. Jack committed suicide, but Joseph was tried and sentenced to life in prison. He was ultimately granted a pardon, but died three days later in jail before receiving the news of his pardon. Fascination with Wendigo psychosis among Western ethnographers, psychologists, and anthropologists led to a hotly debated controversy in the 1980s over the historicity of this phenomenon. Some researchers argue that Wendigo psychosis was essentially a fabrication, the result of naive anthropologists taking stories related to them at face value. Others have pointed out the number of credible eyewitness accounts, both by Algonquins and by Westerners, as evidence that Wendigo psychosis was a factual historical phenomenon. The frequency of Wendigo psychosis cases decreased sharply in the 20th century as boreal Algonquin people came into greater and greater contact with Western ideologies and more sedentary, less rural lifestyles. While there is some sub substantive evidence to suggest that Wendigo psychosis did exist, a number of questions concerning the condition remain unanswered, and there is continuing debate over its nature significance and prevalence.
Right, well, stumbling along looking for information, uh, I figured we'd try and cover something that has to do with uh, accounts, written accounts. So it's it's enough to have um, folklorist accounts, but to have actual written accounts seems pretty pertinent to me at this stage. I'm just going to start off. Uh, one written account dates back to 1823 when Major H. Long, a scout for the United States Army, made an excursion into native territory near Lake of the Woods in Ontario. In his memoirs, he records, a more gloomy name is that of Cannibal or Wadigo Lake, which is derived from an unnatural deed in its vicinity. It is said that a party of Indians belonging to the Ashokamaga, Weenie Waki, or Band of Crossridge, were once encamped near this ridge in the year 1811 and were quite destitute of provisions. They amounted to about 40. Their numbers diminished through famine, the survivors feeding on the bodies of their deceased relations. Finally, there remained but one woman who had subsisted on the bodies of her own husband and children, whom she had killed for this purpose. She was afterward met by a party of Indians who, sharing in the common belief that those who have once fed on human flesh always hunger for it, put an end to her existence. It is interesting to note that the Indians did not see cannibalism as a desperate act of a sane person, but a chronic disease of a deranged person. At first, white people scoffed at this notion, but by the 19th century, scientists were beginning to notice that symptoms like depression, loss of appetite, and fear of turning into a Wendigo were consistent in many First Nation patients. They also noticed that the symptoms were almost always triggered by an extended period of starvation and isolation in the wilderness. Eventually, researchers even coined a medical mental condition called Wendigo psychosis that was particular to the Algonquin-speaking Indians, but very similar to patients suffering from lycanthropy people who thought they were werewolves in Europe. First Nation people believed that the only cure for a Wendigo was death. Even when a person appeared normal, if he or she was suspected of being a Wendigo, they were at the very least ostracized by their fellow tribe members and more often killed. It was also believed that a Wendigo could return from the dead if the heart was not destroyed completely. James Carnegie, Earl of Southisk wrote a diary about his journeys through Saskatchewan and the Rocky Mountains in 1859 and 1860 and recorded this incident. On the neck of land of Saltox, India, was put to death under singular circumstances, being affected by some sort of madness and spoken to no one, and apparently ate nothing for a month. His tribe took the idea that he was a cannibal, and after wounding him severely, they buried him before life was extinct. Many hours later, the unhappy wretch was heard moving in his grave, so they dug him up and burned him to ashes. In most cases, it was believed that white people were immune to becoming either victims of or Wendigos themselves. But John Long, a Hudson Bay trader traveling through Ontario in the year 1799, came across a white Wendigo. The victim did not become a towering, fire-breathing monster, but he did exhibit the classic symptoms of Wendigo psychosis. Long met a Hudson Bay trader by the name of Fulton, who had been working the area of Skunk's Head Lake in the vicinity of Lake Nipigon. While there, Fulton was shocked to receive a complaint by a chief that an evil spirit had entered one of Fulton's men, Charles Janvier, and killed one of the chief's kinsmen. Sent out to trade, Janvier and two other white men, Francois Saint-Ange and Louis de Frens, had been camping deep in the wilderness and ran out of food. They were on the verge of starving to death when a passing native hunter discovered them and gave them what little food he had. The native stayed overnight to make sure that the white men were all right by keeping the fire burning. Unfortunately, instead of feeling gratitude, Janvier felt only more hunger. 
He asked the native to help set a large log on the fire. As the hunter leaned forward to pick up his end of the log, Janvier struck him in the head and killed him. Janvier then hacked up his victim and put some of the pieces in a large cauldron over the fire. Janvier's actions completely terrified his white companions, but they were too weak to resist him. He also threatened them with the same fate unless they shared in the cannibal meal and took an oath before God that they would never reveal the incident to any other living being. When the natives' meat finally ran out, Janvier killed St. Ange and ate him too. Finally, feeling strong enough to travel, Janvier forced the friends to drag him back to camp in the hunter's sleigh. At first, Fulton suspected nothing but native chief's accusations. St. Ange's disappearance and Janvier's suspicious behavior caused him to interrogate the two men until the friends finally confessed. Fulton's reaction to cannibalism was similar to how some natives react to such situations. He had Janvier shot and buried on the spot. At the religious level, the Wendigo legend helped explain why bad things happen to good people. The Algonquin were highly skilled at surviving in the wilderness, but occasionally an individual or even a whole party would fail to return from the hunt. It was hard for those remaining to accept that their best hunter or most experienced forager could simply disappear or get lost. Their spiritual world was populated by a multitude of spirits ranging from the great Manitus to the simple spirit of animals that lived in the wilderness. There were also evil spirits like the Wendigo and Pogok, a flying skeleton that is a version of the Grim Reaper. Then finally, there was a trickster spirit who really meant no harm, but their pranks had a habit of bringing grief to mortal humans.
All right, now just for grins and giggles, we're going to cover uh, something completely off the wall, which, again, I, I don't know why, but for some reason, like all other uh, folkloric monsters, they've decided to make movies out of them. And, um, well, here we go. The first recorded movie that had to do with the Wendigo was in 1940, and it was a motion, motion picture aptly named The Windigo. It was it had Ron Chaney Jr., who I have no idea who that is. Uh, it says the film, was, uh, which was very popular, fused several ideas from native folklore with some Brooklyn touches to create what is generally understood notion of the Windigo in popular culture today. Now, the, the original idea of The Windigo was... The, the the idea of what we see now as the Wendigo, as as far as like the creature that's in Marvel Comics, uh, the one that's on my leg, and um, many other incarnations of it, is is usually either a large white creature with a long tail that looks akin to a Sasquatch or a Yeti. Um, the one that I have on my leg actually is a um, it's an upright stag with um, a spear, feathers. And um, his antlers are actually branches of a tree. And then there's the original description, which is uh, the body was skeletal. It was very, very thin. I, I believe earlier I discussed the fact that it was, uh, if, you, if you looked at it sideways, you wouldn't be able to see it because it was so thin. But it looked a lot like a skeleton. And it had, the, the lips were missing. It didn't have any toes. It looked like a typical frostbite victim. And then it morphed after this movie in the 40s, or 1940. Uh, into what we see now and it's uh the film portrayed a wendigo as a victim of demonic possession deep in the ontario woods and accidentally stumbled upon the demon's lair uh, and then it goes into acts of violence cannibalism and it was a fierce beast eager to kill and destroy you know like any good 40s um monster movie but there was an actual sequel to this a year later called uh, the wendigo returns and then yes there was a third part and it was uh, the Wendigo meets Lord Vorlock in uh, 1942. And uh, Cheney was in both of the movies. It had uh, the vampire Lord Vorlock. I guess the two of them battled it out. There's also later incarnations of it. Um, let's see. The Wendigo was linked to the full moon in some way and usually transformed under its rays. Again, I don't know where that came from. It uh, seems to harken back to the werewolf, which, I mean, I guess you can understand the fact that we there was a lot of Hollywood intervention in this. And, and during this time, during the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, there was a lot of influx of werewolf and vampire movies. So I can understand where it morphed. So um, then there was a big jump. It went from 1942. It kind of died down. And then in 1965, Nile Studio in England um, released a movie called Curse of the Wendigo. And uh, it had a twist in it. Uh, it was a child that was possessed by a demon that uh, remained dormant inside the child. And uh, eventually it came out. Now, it went dormant again. Uh, from 1965, there was nothing until 1980. And the movie The Craving came out. And uh, it started the whole film line all over again. And it was uh, based around actual people who chose to be Wendigos and to reveal their powers by um, raw violence. And uh, it's just, it's nuts because it happens in Chicago and uh, it happens by a reporter investigating some serial killer. And uh, it turns out that it was a Wendigo uh, whose sister led a pack of creatures and seduced the reporter's husband is how it all came about. So you started getting, you know, the typical 1980s flair for nonsense in horror movies. 
And then uh, The Craving 2 came out, and it was called Hill of the Skulls, and that was in 1983. And it was completely over the top, and it was another reinvention of the Wendigo. And uh, it was depicted as one of the servants of the Antichrist. So then, you know, like all good, terrible franchises, uh, The Craving 3 came out. It was The Legacy of Blood, and it was in 1984. But wait, there's more. The Craving 4 came out, and it was called The Dead Men's Ship, and it blended the, um, the story of the legend of the Wendigo with a ghost ship, Sobhan Gallagher. And then in 1989, so you went from 85 to 89, and then The Craving 5 came out, which seems like they were just craving to, uh, <laughs> no pun intended, to just eke as much money as possible out of it. It was The Craving 5, Wild Sisters, Wild with an E, and it was in 89, and it was uh, just a train wreck. The description that's given, it was the... The poacher's boyfriend is the one who ended up being killed. And then there was a Craving 6, which was in 1991. These people just won't let this go. And uh, it was somebody who was confined to, um, well, it was a person from the original number five of the Wild Sisters, Daphne, who escaped from an insane asylum. (sighs) And then in 1993, there was the Craving 7, the wilderness. And it was a prequel to try and describe how this happened, and it was part of a previous life during the 1828 war where they encountered the Wendigo. And then the last one was in the year 2000 of the Craving 8, and it was the original nightmare. Now, as much as I enjoy campy horror films, um, there was an original uh, group of movies called Ginger Snaps, and it was a movie based on werewolves. And they did the same thing. They went forward, and then they got far enough into the movie, and then they decided, well, we need to tell how the story happened. And they flew way back in time to try and understand where this all started. But I have one more ace up my sleeve, and it's an American Wendigo in London. And it was in 1989. And uh, it was a shaman that was cursed, and he eventually killed his own father, and yada, yada, yada. It was an abysmal, abysmal mess. And it just, it, these things won't die. They just won't die. And I guess like a real Wendigo. But uh, now that I'm scanning down the page, um, the last movie was an American window, Wendigo, and it was in 1998, and it was in Castellano. And I just, it, he ends up killing the demon with a flare gun. I guess, need I say more? So... We understand from the beginning of where we all started with the definition of Wendigo all the way up through the original folklore of Wendigo where it was completely bastardized by Hollywood and turned into a kitschy film franchise and completely destroyed. So here I am again, a sad panda at the end of an abysmal run of horrible movies. Well, this was me, Lobo. Again, it was my original intent to try and educate you, but as the uh, information wore on, I believe I may have made you even dumber. And I apologize for that. But uh, by all means, if you want to go out and look for these movies, knock yourself out. I'm going to stand by the fact that I believe that the movie Ravenous was and is the best um, Wendigo-based movie. Go out and check it out. Um, I believe it's on Netflix. If it's not, you can you can see the whole thing on YouTube. I think it's in like nine parts. This is Lobo signing off from Connecticut. Place is uh, still abysmal, but it beats the hell out of living in the Great White North.